I was just doing my own stuff, doing illustration, hitting my audience. They share it. That's like a really small ripple effect. But yeah. now I have this whole huge publishing company behind what I'm doing. So they're making the connections. They're pushing my book. And then there's me. But I almost feel like I'm the smaller piece mm -hmm. of the puzzle. When did you actually start going to these things? I started going to them probably around 2009. Okay. And then I think I started exhibiting in 2010 or 2011. That's a pretty quick transition from just being a casual observer to actually getting like right yeah, into that. Yeah, I, I went to art school Yeah. in 2009. And then I dropped out. Uh-huh. proud art school dropout. Yeah. <laughs> but... Immediately after, I said, you know, if I wanted to keep doing art, then I got to keep doing art. And one of the, my really good art friends encouraged me to just sign up for a show because there's no way to get, there's no better way to get ready for a show yeah. is if you have the pressure and the stress to produce something yeah. show ready. So I signed up for Ape in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got a bunch of stuff ready. Did you go to art school for comics? No, I didn't. I took a comics class with Dan Cooney, uh -huh. and we're still connected. Um, he was a great teacher, but I went for illustration. I wanted to do picture books. Yeah. I, I do do picture books, but comics came after. I don't know why. Uh, it, it wasn't a focus then, but it definitely became more of a focus. As I started doing illustration, and I was not satisfied with just one image and one story, yeah. it kind of just evolved. Doing a, a book of this length is obviously quite the time suck. I mean, this yes. is something you really have to work for. So you're primarily doing illustration, you're doing kids' books. Were you doing smaller comics, publishing mini-comics at all? Uh, I did, you know, kind of slice of life one-offs, yeah. Yeah. but nothing mini-comic-like until probably recently. I did a few things in the nib that are non-fiction, and Pashmina took me four years. Yeah. So that was a long time. I mean, I had a baby in the middle of it, you know, sure. I mean, I was doing Blame other things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I did a picture book in the middle of yeah. that as well. So it wasn't purely working on Pashmina, but it was a really long process. You leaned into it. You didn't ramp up at all, it sounds like. No, I kind of just went you just, all in. You had a story, a specific story that you wanted to tell, and mm -hmm. you you knew it was going to be graphic novel length? Yeah, you know, actually, it's interesting. Uh, in and around the time that I dropped out of art school, I started thumbnailing uh, Autobio comic and that's what I pitched my now agent with yeah. I'm super glad that she discouraged me uh -huh. from making that into a full book because I had a really messed up childhood basically she came at it, she's a lawyer uh, she has a law background so she was like you need to get all the rights to oh. be able to disclose all this stuff and I was like you know I don't really want to do that you know now looking back I was so young and so green and I didn't really know what that would involve and now knowing some people who have done memoir I'm glad that I didn't go down that route yeah. but it's kind of interesting because that, that thumbnailing process and pitching that book is what landed me my agent and then, you know, a couple, I think it was a year later, I came to her with Pashmina. And so I think each thing that I did had its place, you know, in, in the trajectory of my career. You actually have to go through to those different people and ask them if they can appear in your book? Yes. I guess if they're not celebrities? They're, yeah, well, if they're not shown in a favorable light. Yeah, which I assume... Yes. You don't really show anybody in... Memoir, right. nobody actually shows up in a favorable light. That's <laughs> right. the whole fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to make sure that they're okay with it. Yeah. Is that something that you would revisit at some point? No. No. It's, now, now knowing what I know, yeah. I, I think that... So because my, my, my young life was 
was pretty laden with abuse, which is not something that I talk about that much. Yeah. And I don't want to. Yeah. You know, I kind of want to. And it, and I think as I'm getting closer and closer to doing the things that I want to do, I want people to know less about me. Why would you, if that's something that you, you don't really feel comfortable talking about, why, yeah. why did that seem like a good thing to sit down and write a whole book about? Because I didn't know. Yeah. Right? I mean, You didn't I think know it, that you didn't want to talk about it? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that putting yourself out there in that way and making a book about it and having maybe a major publisher pushing it yeah. would mean that I would be doing interviews like this and talking about those details, you know, those yeah. sort of details. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those things of you don't know what you don't know. And now yeah. I know a tiny little yeah. bit more. So I wouldn't really want to revisit that. And plus, I love fiction. I absolutely love fiction. It's the time that it takes to sit down and write the story and then the thumbnail it and then to draw it. And then every single press interview after that is basically you <laughs> sitting down and reliving all of those things that you really don't want to deal with. Yeah. But you're able to obviously inject your experiences into this. I mean, this came from, a, in some respects, a pretty familiar place for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Pashmina and, and the relationship between the mother and daughter is very much like the relationship with my mom. Yeah. Um, but I, I used us as a base, right? I used my mom as a base. I used myself as a base. I used my uncles as a base. But I also did a lot of work to make sure that as much as it was drawing from me and my experience, that... I did the work on the characters and the world that I created and made sure it was unique to them. Yeah. So as much as it was a foundation, I also tried to add so much more to those characters that weren't, that isn't me, that isn't my uncle, you know, that isn't my mom. Yeah. So that they're their own. Obviously, there are some sort of things in, in her past. Her, her parents are together. She's trying to figure out what's going on with her dad, but she still has a pretty reasonably stable childhood. Yeah. Was that important as a foundation for the story? I think so. I think that the relationship that she had with her mom, yeah. even though it was tenuous, being raised by a strong single mom is something that I think would ground anybody and you would have a lot of respect because you would see, you growing up, you would see all the other people who have this kind of fully functional family. Mm. You don't have that. And I think that you can go kind of multiple ways with that, but it can make that relationship with your your only parent really strong. And I think that that's what Priyanka had. You know, when I was creating her, that's what I thought about, yeah. is that they were really close, but she got to a point, you know, you reach an age where the, I don't want to talk about it, answer isn't enough. Yeah. The mom, in a sense, is kind of both sort of embracing India and also kind of at conflict with it, right? She doesn't yeah. want to go back. There's certain things she can't talk about. That's important to the story as far as the girl going off and discovering it on her own. Right. Yeah. And, and making that making that connection with her past. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also really important for Priyanka to have gone on that journey yeah. and to go, to go on it without her mom, that her mom didn't join her and she went on her own. And it's such a journey, right? It's a journey of discovery and of her making that choice that I do want to do this and I am okay going by myself, mm -hmm. even though they're so tied and they, you know, spent all, obviously all, her entire life together. Um, but I think for her, you know, it being the first major trip and, and such an important trip, right? Like a really pivotal moment in her life um, on her own is, uh, is also worthwhile to note. The minute you realize that you don't want to write about yourself, it automatically transitions into something much more fantastic? At least it did for Pashmina. Yeah. At, at the point now, I, you know, I'm always kind of like in the back of my mind, I'm usually working out three different stories. Yeah. Those definitely draw from now where I'm at, I guess, in my development as a writer. I'm not only looking at myself. You know, I'm looking at the people that I know 
and kind of using them as a base and then mm. growing from there. But I still I feel, still feel that it's very useful to use somebody that you know or somebody that you're tied to and have an emotional connection to as kind of your baseline and then developing the character from yeah. there. Were you looking at a lot of fairy tales at, at the time? There are certain... There are definitely certain pieces that you can glom onto, like the magical garment is something that pops up all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, no, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of came together from a variety of different influences. Definitely one of the things was, and I I talk about this a lot actually, is that suitcase that Priyanka opens was this very much drawn from my personal experience of my my mom going back and visiting India when I was growing up and she would come back with a suitcase full of all these quote unquote foreign objects. They were familiar to me because I grew up around all this Indian culture but they were also not familiar to mm-hmm. me in the way that you open up the suitcase and it's just full of these smells and these um, colors in combinations that all together compact, packed together just felt like another world. Felt yeah. like I was literally opening a door to another world. And I remember that distinctly. I was probably 10 or 11 when that happened. And I still remember that. It kind of seared itself in my memory. And that's kind of what I drew upon when I started working on Pashmina. And then there was the experience of me going there with my husband and us being haggled all the time to <laughs> buy Pashminas. Um, and make- it's like this wonderful, magical thing. <laughs> and then you realize that for them, it's like the thing that they're trying to get rid of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess in a way, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, you know, I, in our trip, we never ended up buying a Pashmina, yeah. but it also made an impact. It kind of like... Why? Why? Why are people pushing these pashminas on us? And then we had all these like theories we were joking around about, like maybe the pashmina wants to leave. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they're like get out. Maybe they're haunting them. So there, you know, there's a bunch of different experiences yeah. that kind of led me to the book. And a good bit of symbolism in the in the suitcase that she doesn't open for a very long time. Mm-hmm. That's just this sort of like constant presence in her life, but it's sitting up on a shelf, and then yep. it kind of opens itself up, I guess, at one point. Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of asks to be opened. Yeah. So you were actually born in India, right? Yeah, and, I was born in India. And when did you move to the U.S.? I moved to the U.S. when I was four months old. Okay. But we went back a couple times when I was younger. But yeah. my parents split up. And that now I think it's very different in the Indian community. But in the 80s, it was really, really taboo. So as a result, my mom pretty much got ostracized from her, her community here. And then my family in India... You know, I mean, they still tell her that she should get back together with my dad. You know, that's like still like it's been like dozens multiple and decades. Dozens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just it's yeah. hard. And so we didn't go back to India that yeah. much as much as kind of, I guess, my counterparts, you know, my, my peers would go back a lot. And my mom, I think it, so much. So you can see the parallels, right? Yeah. So much of this stems from my own life. I guess you're technically also first generation, but you know, you were for most intents and purposes, basically born here. Yeah. What's that experience like with parents who come over here, obviously trying to, you know, give their children a better life, but are still trying to, I, I assume, embrace that culture and bring it over and make it a part of your life. Yeah, I mean, we grew up in Southern California in a humongous Indian community. I have 12, 13 cousins. I've lost count just on my dad's side. So all my dad has five brothers. They all immigrated here Mm -hmm. together. So we all grew up together. And we were really pretty tight. We spent a lot of weekends together. We did a lot of Hindu things together. So, like, we would do the prayer circles and all that stuff. And, like, our parties would always be structured around getting together and doing prayer songs, yeah. singing prayer songs, and then it would just be this 
big party of like kids playing and lots of food. So I grew up around all that, but at the same time I was growing up here. So then there was this duality that was always present. And Southern California is like its own unique culture from the yeah. rest of the world as well. <laughs> That's true too. There's a bit of a conflict between the mother and daughter from the standpoint of, uh, you're getting a little too, not too American, but this American culture is maybe not doing great things for you as far as like your inclination to speak up and, and to push back. Was that drawing from a real place? You know, I think my, my, my mom definitely discouraged me from watching a lot of American television because yeah. she felt like it was contributing to my attitude <laughs> um, and kind of snarkiness. So yeah, definitely I think that a lot of it was, was shocking to her and there are some lines in in Pashmina that are directly drawn from you know yeah. these conversations that I had with my mom where it was like I would never think of talking this way to my parents I can't believe you're talking this way to me and you know I think reflecting back to and and working on the book I really understand it from both perspectives now which is it there's a different attitude growing up in India and how you treat your parents mm. and what level of respect there is even going through the hormonal teen stage yeah. you know um, you just don't do those things it's just not a common it's not commonplace and so it is commonplace here yeah. a little more so at least depending on where where you are culturally what backgrounds you come from and so I think for my mom it was really shocking and for me it was shocking to have it not be accepted because mm -hmm. I saw it everywhere. You know, I saw my friends talking back to their parents, and then I obviously saw it on TV that I was discouraged from watching. That's a process of, again, in a sense, revisiting. Clearly not as literally as you would have been before, but uh, anytime I go back and look at things that I did or, or wrote, you realize kind of what, what a jerk you were at times. And maybe, maybe you want to go back and, and apologize to your parents a little bit for kind of putting them through that. Yeah, I think my mom and I have gone through many stages of apologizing yeah. to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you've reconciled that. Yeah. In the early stages of doing something a little bit more autobiographical, did you talk to her at all about that process or about being at least interested in revisiting it? No. I yeah. didn't, and what's interesting is my mom, my mom heard, I mean, we're, we're really close. We text all the time. Yeah. We talk a lot. And I was constantly talking to her about Pashmina and the development process. And I kept asking her, do you want to see thumbnails? Do you want to see some of the final art? And she refused, hmm. flat out refused to see any of it. Not because she didn't want to, but my mom is a, an avid reader. She's the reason I fell in love with books. She's the basis of all that. And her thing was she didn't want to see it until it was an actual oh. real book. And for me, that yeah. was really hard because I was like, I want to show you this. Yeah. I, you know, I caught to this new place and I think it's exciting or I figured out this, this part of the book that's really interesting and I think you, that you would want to see it. And she was just flat, no, I don't want to see it until it was a real book. So she didn't see it until June. You know, when we had physical copies. So it was really interesting. She's been behind this comics thing the whole time? Um, not the whole time. <laughs> it took a little. I mean, obviously, this is like your, your kind of moment of triumph of like, hey, look, yeah. I've got an actual thing and I'm on a legitimate publisher. Yeah. I mean, I just talked to her last night yeah. and she told me about the like 15 people that she's connecting with right now, giving my book out. She's bought like 20 copies of the book and she's just like handing them out like candy. You're going to have to do a second printing because <laughs> of your mom. Right, exactly. She's like meeting with librarians. She's like setting, she's like my little like Southern California rep she's right now. She's a street now. team. Yeah, she totally <laughs> is. It's wonderful. But you know, I will say this, like in the very beginning when I was, when I was thinking about going into art and it, this is a common thread with I think most Asian Americans, yeah. you know, my parents 
were not really supportive. And it wasn't because they didn't believe that I could do it. It was that they didn't have an example that they could point to and say, well, we know that if you go down this path that you'll be able to earn a living and you'll be successful, right? And so without... I think that's a reasonable concern just across the board, even as somebody who like is in this world that's a good parental concern yeah i think it's it's a it's a really uh understandable concern from a parent's perspective that you you want your kid to be able to pay their rent and have Mm -hmm. enough food you know kind of basic concerns out of the way and from i think what they knew in terms of art is that maybe they knew museum art but beyond that they didn't really truly understand it for a long time they called my illustration work cartoons you know which is different and and I think that they they had a hard time grasping it but it was interesting to see as I was developing as an artist and as I was gaining a following they were growing with me I was mm. learning in the industry I was learning the path to success and they were learning along with me and so as much as they discouraged it kind of on the onset they never said don't do this yeah they just said are you sure you know so in a way, that was as supportive as they could be. So mm. I kind of, I couldn't have asked for more than that because they couldn't give me more than that. They didn't have anything to draw upon to kind of give them an example of like, well, we could be like this. We could be 100% supportive and this would be really good. Were you always drawing? Yeah. I mean, I, I loved drawing from a very young age. I was not good though. I was pretty terrible. Even when I went into art school, I was really, really awful. I didn't know what I was doing. But I was having this really interesting conversation with an artist friend of mine, and we were talking about the people who come into art school who are super talented versus the people who are kind of at the bottom. That was me. Uh And I feel that when you have a certain amount of talent, you become like kind of the star of the classroom. You become the star of the department, and you're not pushed as hard. And I feel like, and this isn't true for everybody, right? This is a generalization. But I feel that you don't push yourself as hard. Mm. And because I was terrible, I had to work really, really hard to not be terrible. You're also more malleable. Good point. Did you know you were terrible at the time? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't like you thought you were great oh, and then no. in hindsight no, I, you're... I, I, don't okay. think I, I, that, I don't think that will ever cross my mind that I'm like, think that I'll great, I'm great. I always think there's always something to learn yeah. and something to strive for. And I was just there to get better. That's why I went to art school. You know, I had a degree in literature. I had done all these hobby art classes, but I ended up doing these, you know, kind of art leagues that every town has. But I would go to these classes, and it would be full of, like, 60-year-old retirees. And then I would be the youngest person. Mm -hmm. Then I went to art school, and I was the oldest person. So I was kind of like the 60-year-old retiree. You know, so the tables were turned in that way. But I was just there to get better. You thought you were bad, and you were older than everyone else. What... (laughs) <laughs> what gave you the confidence that this was something that you could actually pursue professionally? I don't know. <laughs> or was it a case of like, I'm not sure I can really do anything else? Oh, I was full of self-doubt. Yeah. Full of it. Actually, I remember sitting in the, on, a, on a, my best friend's couch and talking to her about art school. But being around artists, I think, was in its, of itself inspirational. Yeah. Just being in art school, even though I dropped out. But I got exposed, right? I got exposed to all these illustrators and all these like picture book artists and comic book artists. And I started to see more and more of what that life would look like. Because just like my parents, I didn't really understand it either. I didn't understand how many different 
career opportunities and aspects there were to making art and making art as a career. And so I love that part of it. And I remember sitting in my best friend's living room and saying, I just want to make people happy. Mm. I just want to make stories and make people happy. And I think I used that, you know, that that was my motivator. Like, how can I do that? What are the steps I can do to get closer to that? Were you dealing with that imposter syndrome at the time? I deal with it daily. You're still working through it? Yeah. It doesn't really go away? What was it that made you drop out? Uh, I dropped out because they were making us work on the same piece for, like, months at a time. And I felt like trying to make an art, a piece of art perfect was going against my development as an artist. So, you know, you would workshop this piece, you would have other, like, peers comment on it, and then you'd go back and revise it, and then your your professor would get their kind of shot at it. And I was done with the piece at that point. I wanted to move on. And so I, at that time, decided that I would drop out and I would just do, do a drawing every day, a complete drawing every day, even if it was terrible. And I started a mailing list of my family and friends to kind of keep myself accountable. So... I, could, I wasn't just doing an illustration and keeping it in, you know, on my computer or in my notebook. I was sharing it. And so I was kind of responsible towards an audience. This was pre-Instagram and all the social networks. I kept that practice up for three yeah. years. And in and around, like, year one, at the end of year one, my mailing list grew to the point where there were people on it I didn't know because people were forwarding my drawings along because I actually wasn't terrible. And then around... Maybe a year and a half in, or maybe a year, I can't remember now. People started asking for prints. So that in and of itself was kind of... Validated. Validated, yeah, yeah, exactly. On making this decision to drop out, there wasn't any doubt whether or not you would continue to do this or, or be able to do this. Right. Was There wasn't like a moment when you're like, well, I'm going to have to go work in the factory. Well, I mean, I was still working. Yeah. You know, I've been working since I was 16. Yeah. So I was working at the library at the time. And then for a brief period of time when I was in art school, I was also working as a waitress. But I had gone through, I graduated from UC Santa Cruz with a degree oh, in too. literature. Oh, really? Yeah, I was a creative writing major. Oh, Santa awesome. Cruz. That's funny. <laughs> so I graduated from UCSE. Yeah. You did your undergrad in literature? I did. So that must have been useful for it was. what you're doing now. You know, I mean, but at the same time, my parents were, they didn't want me to study art. I had thought about it and I had talked to them about it. And with literature, they knew that it could lead me down the path to teaching. So ah. they knew they knew that path. So yeah. they're like, okay, you can, you know, do this. Yeah. Th- this is safer. Something right? legitimate. Yeah. But I mean, also the college application process, being in college, all that stuff coming from where they came from not that they're not college educated but the American system is very different so they gave me as much advice as they could and so I studied literature but UCSC I transferred in okay they don't offer art as a minor oh. so I couldn't minor in art yeah. and so when I left UCSC I worked in nonprofits for a long time and I had like about a year bandwidth at about a year, I would quit every job. As soon as I like got close to a year, it was a joke with me and my, my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, that, oh, we're getting close to a year. Yeah. You're, you're going to quit. And, yeah. it, and inevitably, it would always happen. Because you I just don't, got something new? or No, because no. I just wasn't satisfied. Yeah. You know, And I knew I could find something better. I knew it was not right for me. And I'm pretty headstrong when it comes to that. I remember one job I actually just walked in and handed my keys to the door in, and I was like, I'm done. It was just like a spur of the moment that morning. I had nothing to fall back on. Were, were these completely unrelated jobs? I mean, No, they were, were all in the nonprofit sector. Okay. At some point, I, I worked myself up to 
being an executive director yeah. as a grant writer. You know, I was also an executive admin. So, you know, I kind of bounced around. But did you feel like you were working towards something? I really wanted to make a difference. Yeah. Right? So that's why I went into nonprofits. Yeah. But I didn't feel that what I was doing was actually doing that. You were juggling a couple of abstractions that you wanted out of a career, but you just you, you didn't see a clear career path ahead of you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and also, I think I'm, I'm pretty good to work with, but yeah. I'm not good to have somebody above me. Yeah. I don't deal well with people telling me what to do. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I do, right, like yeah. in a respectful way, but like a daily kind of in-your-face boss situation wasn't always something that worked for me. And so eventually, you know, I mean, now I'm my own boss, and I think that works well for me. And I also recognize that that's an extreme privilege. But, you know, there, there are also downsides to working for yourself. I'm the one who has to motivate myself to yeah. get out of bed every morning. And, you know, there's no guarantee. My only guarantee in income is if I get up and produce something. Right. Do you have to set office hours for yourself? Yeah. I mean, part of it is because I'm a parent, right? Yeah. So we have a nanny come in in the morning. Yeah. And so when she's in, those are like my good friend and I talk about how nanny hours are precious hours. Yeah. And you cannot, you know, um, abuse them, right? You can't just be like, well, I'm just going to like lay in bed for a little bit longer. Um, no, you have to actually, because you're paying somebody to take care of your child so that you can get work done. So you got to get your butt out of bed and get going. So in a strange sense, having a kid has actually potentially made you more productive. No, I was always really productive. Okay. I, I think that it's decreased my productivity yeah. in kind of superfluous things. Like, I guess fun drawing has gone by the wayside. It's really, uh, I, I draw for the things that I need to do and I don't draw in the evenings anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't like sketch all the time on the weekends. I'm, and that's, that's fine with me. Yeah. I'd rather enjoy my family time. It's more rewarding. As somebody who does something creative, I mean, and this also goes with being your own boss, the, the upside and the downside of it are both that you you don't really shut it off. There's a certain mm -hmm. amount of time that you're actually sort of spent producing, but I assume you spend a lot the rest of the time thinking about the book and, and do. plotting it out. I do. In fact, I was just writing an email right before dinner yesterday. I mean, I'm here at the con, so I'm thinking about this stuff, but I'm never not thinking about either the next story or three stories down. I remember actually we, we just, we got a house with a hot tub, came with the house mm -hmm. and I remember thinking like we're never going to use this thing and we actually have, it's sure. nice to relax and uh, we're relaxing in the hot tub and I'm totally talking to my husband about the next story. Yeah, I can't not think about it Yeah, and I don't mind. I think when you do what you love it's a different mindset than you know working at Google or something. You know. I'm sure there are people who love what they do. No, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the difference is that, I mean, a lot of people have those thoughts. A lot of people have those story ideas, but you're not just, you're not throwing them down a well. Right. And it's more rewarding and more motivating that you know that at some point this is going to manifest itself into an actual thing. Right. Well, and you have ownership over it yeah. and you have control. I think that's, you know, ultimately exactly yeah. what you're saying is that if I really feel that this idea or this plot point is important, I can fight for it or I can put it in and nobody can argue with me about it. 
So how does actually having a book out compare to, I assume this is something you've thought about for a really long time, mm-hmm. uh, what, you, what, what are the realities of actually having this thing out in the world now? It just came out, yeah. so I'm just starting to learn all that stuff. You but... still have a little bit of the glow afterwards, or is there, yeah. is there postpartum depression? Like, what's <laughs> what's going through your brain right now? It's all excitement yeah. and good things. Okay. Uh, it, you know, I think that it's really, I mean, having a comic book out, I think, is a little bit different than having a prose book out mm. from the authors that I know, because somebody can read a comic book really quickly, yeah. even though it, it yeah. takes that painstakingly long yeah, time yeah. to create. It's it's about an hour, right? Somebody will read Pushmina in an hour, cover to cover, and then what's amazing is they'll read it again. You know, my mom just told me yesterday, she read, she read it three times recently, and that's an amazing feeling. If your mom wasn't your mom, she would be a stalker, you know? Yeah. This would be like, if she, <laughs> she wasn't directly related to you, this would be an uncomfortable relationship, yes, it, it sounds like. <laughs> That's very true. But I think the other thing about having the book out is getting the messages from people who are reading it. Yeah. My favorite is when people are sharing with me their children are reading it, or their children snatched it from their hands, because it's a comic book. Right? And I just love that. Have you done any of the classroom appearances yet? Or those are just um, I did up? some okay. uh, unrelated to Pashmina okay. early on, but not, this yeah. is this is the beginning. Like right after our New York Comic Con, I'll okay. be doing kind of two to three presentations a day for about a month. What's the presentation like? Entertaining. Uh-huh. I did a little test. Uh, do you do voices? No, I don't do okay. voices. But I do. I talk about pajamas. Talk about working in my pajamas. Uh-huh. I talk about... So there's a little bit of career day in there? It's a little bit of career day, but a lot of it is about growing up. Because, you know, I'm presenting to kids, so yeah. I want to talk to them about that stage in my life so that it's relatable. It's about loving books, loving drawing. And then, you know, there's some stories, some very specific stories about people in my life who discouraged me and how I kept going, you know, and kept fighting against yeah. that. It's interesting, the, the change in the past, you know, five to ten years as far as both library and elementary school embraces of comics, it seems it seems perfectly acceptable now, at least with good teachers. What, comics? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was lucky in that my mom didn't really care what I was reading as long as I was reading. Yeah. And it was super useful. Were, were you reading comics at all early on? All I read was Garfield. Okay. Yeah. When I'm- did you actually start reading, like... I don't want to say, I don't want to disparage Jim Davis, but when did you start reading real comics? <laughs> Not newspaper comics? Yeah. Probably around college, okay. I got exposed. Uh, actually, no, I take that back. It was around high school that uh, my high school boyfriend shared Ghost World with me. Oh, yeah. And and then I started kind of exploring a little bit. Ghost World's of, always the one that, like, tips people over. Yeah. And and then I had um, a few Adrian Tomine. Yeah. That was, like, way early, yeah. his early, early work. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm saying his name. Tomine, yeah. Tomine, yes. Yeah. I knew that was wrong. And so I got interested in, in uh, some of those comics around that time, and I didn't really come back to it until after I graduated UCSC, partly because there wasn't anybody in my life who was really into comics. But in high school, kind of all my high school crew, we were all the nerds who hung out in the back of the school. Mm-hmm. We, were, we called it the Bat Cave. We, we were so goofy and weird, and we read comics. When did it occur to you that you could actually start doing that in addition to illustration? You have your literature life, mm-hmm. and you have your art life, and maybe there's a place where these two things can, can meet. I mean, I think that it started brewing in art school. Yeah. So I interned in this artist studio where basically I was just kind of like hanging out, and they occasionally asked me to help them out. But I interned there, and while I was there, I was like, okay, well, if I'm here... And I'm around all these, like, working artists, these real freelancing artists, which is super inspirational just to be in that environment. I'm going to give myself a project to complete, and that's when I completed the autobio 
you know, thumbnailing book, and that's what I pitched. And so I feel like it was just going to art school and having the lit degree. I don't know. There's no like clear trajectory yeah. for it, but I definitely feel that being in art school helped me figure out that there was a way to combine my lit background with the art background to comics. In the middle, I did a bunch of illustration. I think I needed to develop as an artist to really get there and be yeah. able to communicate panel to panel and draw so much. Like drawing for over 150 pages is it's a lot of drawing and a lot of redrawing. I can't imagine having thumbnailed an entire book and then having to kill it. I mean, that must have been, it must have hurt. I mean, it did, but it wasn't good. You know, yeah. I mean, it was good for showing that I could stick with it, yeah. that I knew how to panel. As somebody who quit jobs year right, after right, right, year, right, right, right. like exactly. you actually finally finished something. Yeah, I finished something. Yeah. Exactly. I look at it now and, and I would probably be embarrassed to have it out in the market, yeah. mostly because I was still underdeveloped as an artist and as a comics artist. Did it feel bad at the time? No. It felt cathartic, you know, yeah. and it felt good. And, and at the same time, it didn't feel bad at the time. As much as I say, looking back at it, I would be embarrassed by it. I also know that it had a function and it had a purpose. Yeah. Because if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to get to Pashmina. I learned a lot through that. I mean, every bad drawing is going to teach you something. 200 pages of bad drawings is definitely going to teach you something. Are you a cartoonist now? Are you a comics person? Is, are, is your next project another comic? I already have sold my next oh, wow. book to First Second. It's called Jukebox. I'm just in the beginning thumbnailing process. And what's crazy about it is I submitted Pashmina in September of last year. And I remember asking my friends, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to take a break. It was about a week, and then I was like, so I missed comics. I absolutely hated the end process because I was, like, working up to a deadline, right? Yeah. And I was doing split shifts, yeah. which I've done a few times now. Uh, we had a newborn, so I was stopping to pump in the middle of my drawing day and then putting her to bed for God knows how long it was taking to get her to go to sleep. And then, so that was, like, 9 to 5, and then we would be together till 8 or 9, and then I would go back to work until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. That was to hit deadline. And I thought at the end of it, you know, I was done and I took a week off. And then I was like, man, I'm really not going to want to do comics again. And it was literally a month later that I was pitching my next book. I really liked the pain, apparently. There you go. That was Needy Chinani. Recorded that at New York Comic Con a few months back. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks so much to her for taking the time to do that. Her new book, Pajmina, came out in October from 1st to 2nd. Really, really wonderful graphic novel. Highly recommend it. Uh, you can also check out her work over at everydayloveart.com. Thanks so much to her. Thanks to Gina at 1st Second for setting up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are plenty of ways to support us. You can uh, go rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. We've got a Patreon if you want to send a couple of bucks our way. Follow us on Tumblr. That's RYLcast. .tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL related information. If you've got any feedback, it's RIYLcast at gmail.com. I think that's about all I got for this week. Uh, so uh, happy holidays to everyone. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show in the past year. Really, really appreciate all of the listeners and wonderful feedback that we get. And uh, stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.